Hello, my father. Hi, Ernie. How are you, Mom? Doing good. Uh, we finally made it. Uh, it was a little trouble playing the last few weeks, it seems like. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's what, 9 o'clock there, so you're just starting your work? I mean, uh, it's been, I've been I had a 7 a.m. meeting with the engineers, so I've been doing all sorts of things. Engineers, uh, Russia and stuff? <laughs> no, they're yeah, not. Yeah, I mean, our, our, Rus our Russian engineers no longer live in Russia. They're scattered yeah, across. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think right now it's currently it's the Netherlands, Greece, and Georgia. Okay, so most of them are European time. Uh, yeah, so it's evening for them, basically. Yeah, yeah. The start of our day here is the end of theirs. Yeah. So, okay, so should we go on to Titan? Yeah. Yeah. So this was interesting. I was thinking that, you know, after Chapter 1, I thought, oh, Chapter 1 is about growing up with his dad, and then after that, it'll mostly be about his business stuff. But his dad is a major player, uh, and perhaps even the defining feature of his life, at least in this. I mean, to be fair, I think Ron Chernow has a thesis, that hmm. um, Rockefeller's, you know, family upbringing is key to understanding who he was and is as a businessman. I think he says that in the introduction. Okay. A lot of people talk about Rockefeller. They do a business biography, you know, starting with hmm. the business, and they talk about that. And yeah. either they ignore his upbringing or they pounce on that and use that as a kind of a club <laughs> to – yeah. To, 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 his enemies have use it to uh, kind of embarrass him or whatever, like that lady who was uh, kind of a big anti-Rockefeller crusader. Who, yeah. I guess she, she was the that was the one time the oral historian saw him lose his temper was when she talked mm. about his father. So, uh, it, yeah. you know, so it's, a, it's probably a caveat that Ron Chernow has a point of view on this matter. Okay. And he is definitely like, like you know, you know the the we're chapter I guess four now. Uh, I lost track of the numbering, but the hmm. this this is about where he we, the last episode he uh, just launched his own law for his own uh, partnership. Yeah, and then at, at that time one, he was still uh, just buying and selling or something like he's not into oil yet. Yeah, so not, yeah, not, not into oil. Yet. It, they tease that at the end of this. So the, just to give a quick summary of the chapter is he starts off by launching his own firm, which is basically commodities, you know, buying and yeah. selling uh, on the yeah. Ohio River in Cleveland. And it goes through, uh, he, the two guys are doing it. They bring in a third partner and they drop Rockefeller's name from the business, presumably to make it seem more prestigious. Uh, and yeah. the chapter ends with, them, with him kicking that guy out and taking yeah. it over and then a teaser yeah. about oil. And in the middle of this, this little thing called the American Civil War that happened. <laughs> yeah. Um, and even there, you know, and so, and there's this dual track again about uh, part of the war is about the profits he makes from it because, you know, the, the very early military industrial complex dramatically mm. accelerated the industrialization um, and arguably created an overbuilding of railroads, which Rockefeller would later use to his advantage. 
Um, yeah. So that's one narrative there. And then the second narrative is the drama within his family about how mm-hmm. he uh, possibly for legitimate reasons, you know, defers uh, becoming a soldier and his underage brother does become a soldier, which is a source of some yeah. contention. And even yeah. there, like behind all of that, the, the father and his dynamic is a big deal, right? It's just like he is caring for his family because his father is not. And that's one of the reasons he's given for a def- he's given a deferral. Yeah, from he, being he in the civil a, war, he becomes an adult pretty quickly, uh, as uh, the man of the house. Yeah, right. And, and just to you know, let me close up the summary because it's interesting. Like, and, and and this is an interesting theme that keeps cropping up: is his father mm. is doing what is clearly a bad thing, being a bigamist. Yeah, right. He's married yeah. someone else, and yet oddly enough, that. Uh, potentially saves Rockefeller's life, right? By by saddling him with the responsibility of having to care for the family, he gets a deferral and doesn't get shot and killed in the Civil War. And instead makes yeah. a huge pile of money from it. And, you know, this paradox seems to permeate at least the early chapters of this book. Because the other mm-hmm. dimension is about like raising capital because he, he finds these enormous business opportunities. It's like, oh, uh, it was he hates borrowing, but he was very good at it. Right, and he would very carefully manipulate uh, public opinion, and, and um, even though it was very sincere, trade on his reputation as a staunch churchman to, um, you know, borrow money. But then the dynamic of, you know, he would borrow money from his father, but his father would borrow money from him, and it even says yeah. that his father deliberately uh, messed with him in, in the modern terminology. Um, mm. Precisely to teach him um, to be sort of cautious and careful around money. Um, yeah. And I guess, I think, what was it, the biographer says that in later years, he would often talk about how he learned so much about money, but then he would, in sort of rare, unguarded moments, confess how angry he was at being manipulated like that by his father. Right. Right. Uh, you know, where he, uh, yeah. and, um, so anyway, that is kind of the a summary of the stuff I saw in that chapter, um, okay. where he's um, and uh, the last thing I'll mention, just as I was thinking about this, is um, John Delkey from Kingsway posted about Father's Day uh, in their monthly newsletter, and he said, you know, and you know, it's, it, he says, you know, it's hard to say what, what my kids should give me and what I should give my dad. But then he started asking the question, what should I give Father God on Father's Day? Hmm. And his answer okay. was that, well, what he, what he probably wants is just our presence, right? Just to, you know, especially as parents get older, I know that's a very important thing. But I thought about hmm. that, like, is that on the one hand, like, yeah, God does want me to come and be with him and spend time with him. But mm-hmm. that's not yeah, all like there is to Yeah, like he did with Adam and Eve. Yeah, like he did with Adam and Eve every day he Right, was, but... You know. But but this was one of the questions. I don't know. It's kind of a weird philosophical point. But like, if all God wanted was for us to be with Him, we could have just stayed there, right? We could just die and go to heaven, right? And there's certain sects of Christianity that oh, yeah, yeah, kind yeah, of after, as far as yeah. it, <laughs> that's interesting because after this we are going to be with Him all the time. <laughs> right. So, yeah. so so it's like, well, so maybe what He wants. No. Yeah. So so so, yeah. so let me just what answer my question and yeah, yeah and then think? we can go. Yeah. So what occurred to me was that. Um, like part of what he wants is for us to be our own people who carry a piece of him with us into the world, right? 
the idea that, you know, it's not just about, or, or maybe it, it's not just being with God in some sort of uh, Asian uh, mysticism, Eastern mysticism thing of just like a drop of water returning to the ocean, right? He wants us to be with him as distinct individuals who can love him. And yeah. the, we have to leave and become distinct so that we can love him. And, but that what he wants, like for the way that we honor him is to not forget him, but to remember him to be, um, I mean, and especially uh, I think about the whole in terms of Christ. I haven't quite worked this out in terms of God, the father, but certainly in terms of like our kids, right? Like we want, you know, especially my son, it's more complicated with daughters. I haven't even started to figure that one out yet. But for my son, it's like, mm. I want him to be his own man and go out in the world and do his own thing. But I want him to take a part of me, ideally the best part of me, with him so that his inheritance, his heritage, his patrimony, literally, that he takes with him. Like, that's what I really want for Father's Day, for him to have gone out and come back and that I see, you know, that he is uh, taking the best part of me out into the world and that is benefiting him in some way. Right. And I think that that's... That's kind of what I think Sunday morning ought to be. Yeah. Right? That so we go out to the, the world question. and we come back to somebody. How about you? You want to have part of your father you want to take with you. That is a very well, – well, we may get there. I wasn't going to go there yet. We probably will get there. But I was, I was, like, okay. like, well, I was, I was thinking about that in the context of Father Day. I was just reading the devotion before. And it's like, oh, yeah. That's exactly <laughs> the <laughs> awkward question that we're seeing in this chapter, right, uh, is that the patrimony that John D. Rockefeller has from his father is clearly um, a traumatic, right? He has a very traumatic uh, relationship with his father and his family and the family and all that dynamic. Um, and yet, it is also very clearly a key part of his business success. And you think you know, that the, uh, the uh... In what way are you saying that? Uh, because he was a little bit more ruthless? Well, I, first, I mean, just like in this, uh, like the, the thing that his contemporaries, like his admirers talk about him is how he is so obsessive about money and focused on money, right? And they give the example of how, uh, and, and very thoughtful about money, right? And, and, and yeah, like, yeah. So, yeah. And so he is, thank you. Uh, well, I'm greeting everybody on the street as we walk past them as usual. Uh, Rollick, yeah. But that, uh, like he says, he, like if he needs to borrow $5,000, he'll start a rumor that he's going to invest $10,000 to like make it, kind of socialize the idea that he's, and like, like he is, um, and so, and, and he talks about how you know his his dad would borrow would would borrow money from him, uh, or would loan him money and then call it back at, at awkward moments, just to make mm. him thrash around and then give it back to him again later. Right? He was playing all these yeah. games with money, and yeah. you know, if nothing else, Rockefeller learned that money is really important and worth spending time thinking about. 
Mm. Where perversely yeah. or conversely, for example, I did not particularly learn that lesson from you. Like I learned from the lesson, okay. like okay, money's a thing. You need to be careful with it. Yeah. But like it never occurred to me that money was a big deal. Like I think I told you when I went to management consulting, and I was yeah. Yeah, like hanging around with all these business people. They're, they're like, yeah. they're, these people are obsessed about money in the Rockefeller, possibly quite directly in the Rockefeller lineage, and like this just this was never a hot, like, like, like making money, having money, needing money was never a high priority. Like it was a, maybe a priority to like, be careful. So you don't, uh, I, I, it was, the, the, the message was more along the lines of the message I internalized. I'm curious whether you've thought about it at the time or afterwards is like mm-hmm. money's a nice thing to have, but the important mm-hmm. thing is to be careful. So you don't need much. <laughs> You know, like we, we, you know, I remember growing up in, um, you know, living in apartments and the sense that when we bought the house, we bought the house because we had made it because we were already making enough money to cover it. And therefore yeah. it was, and that we, the, 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 the message I internalized was we really lived very carefully and simply and cheaply until we were able to afford nice things. And then we mm. bought it and we could afford it and we can enjoy it as opposed to, a, trying to enjoy things and then figure out how to pay for them later. Or that the, the uh, I guess because of that, there was never a sense to me, right, that money was a scarce thing that you had to obsess over. It's yeah. like if you have a little, you live on a little and you're fine. And if you have yeah. a lot, you, you enjoy it a lot, and that's fine too. Uh, I, I'm curious, actually, how you viewed all that. Yeah, but you have a lot of other layers there. See, uh, one, um, we were first-generation immigrants, right? And two, we were really uncertain of our future. We were going to stay here, go back, so saving money for that and that type of thing. And then third, my father was different from Kamli, uh, mama's, mommy's father. Uh, yeah. So that also, because it's not just me, right? You have yeah. both the parents. Uh, and uh, so you have to put that into... Uh, account, uh, but uh, you kind of capsulized my view of the money. But one of the things was uh, once I became a doctor and surgeon here, money came, see whether I wanted it or not. Right? Instead of a golden era for being a doctor financially, arguably. Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the, the yeah. Because, because I remember just uh, at the very end, price controls in Medicare started coming in, right? Yeah. At least, yeah. At least when, I, when I left home in the, the 80s, was when, that was the first computer program I wrote, was to help you manage billing <laughs> codes for Medicare. Right now, there's multi- <laughs> you know, if I kept with that, I could have been epic, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, no. but, you know, uh, but uh, a lot of people got caught in it, and they would uh, manufacture Calls to get more money from the government, which was not a problem with us. And yeah, uh, again, like you know, you see my, I think you heard my famous quote, right? I came with seven dollars, so fourteen dollars to the both of us. So anything more is a profit, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that Rockefeller would not agree. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And he I has his father to thank for that, for both good and ill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but so so you you don't really have 
the real perspective because you, you're caught between two worlds and uh, two uh, perspectives from the old world perspective and stuff like that. So you have several layers there, but your children are different. Your children are growing as any other American family. Right. Yeah, right? I struggle uh, with that in, in that yeah. way. Like this idea that money is not necessarily scarce, but I should, but it's, I, uh, the, so the one thing I noticed is that like things that, that cause a, a loss of money, like the, 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 the emotional thing for me is broken AirPods or lost AirPods. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> okay. like, it's like when, the, like when the kids do that, it fills me with this, with, I mean, not quite rage, but maybe shame is the word. I don't know. It's like, like, like we can't afford to lose things like that. And the reality is, it's like, okay, you know, $100 for AirPods is a thing, but it's not really a crisis, you know, a, a, a disaster. Um, you know, uh, like I remember when we would, uh, uh, we had contact lenses. I think contact lenses were the, uh, that generation's yeah. AirPods. Like an expensive yeah. thing that when you yeah. lose it, it's like a huge disaster. People spend hours searching through trash cans or the yard trying yeah. to find a lost contact lens. Yeah. And like I think yeah. I think that you know because back then that was a lot of money and money was not a thing. I, that was the thing. Money was not a thing to waste. Yeah. yeah right? It wasn't a thing important. to obsess over getting, yeah. but it was not a it's thing to waste. Which is yeah. yeah, it's not that particular thing, but it's a fact that you're right. Uh, you and, have and, to be careful with things. And, and, and this is the interesting thing that's funny, because some people, I think, people are worried about money, right? Yeah. But I think the lesson I internalized, as long as I don't waste money, then I don't yeah. have to worry about money. Right. That was the lesson I have. So interestingly, yeah. so I don't worry about money, but the price of not worrying about money is that I have to make sure I'm not wasting it. And so that's right. an interesting, uh, you know, and I'm wrestling with the fact there's this um, thing, this kind of this design rule in computer architecture is that it's a moral yeah. imperative to waste the abundant resource to conserve the scarce resource, right? Mm. So in the back of the day when programmer time was abundant and machine time was scarce, you yeah. have the humans doing all this cross-checking and editing and whatever on their punch cards before they gave it to the computer. Okay. Right, because human time was cheap, and to me, machine time was expensive. But now that it's inverted, yeah. you know, I type mm. you know, a word into my text editor, and ChatGPT fills in the rest of the paragraph. Because <laughs> they mm. can just waste all that computer time trying to figure out what I might need, <laughs> and then run and check and do all these things. Right? Is that mm. is that what's scarce and abundant? And the the thing that I've been wrestling with is, is like, you know, it's entirely possible. My son, that that my my brain is calibrated to a certain way of dealing with money. Right. That is not the way my son's brain needs to be calculated for him to live his best life. Okay. Right. And this is the, okay. the tension: is that there's things the, the, the two by two matrix. Because like, right? There's things that um, you know, there's things that I'm passing on to my son. There's things mm. that I'm passing on to him that I don't want to pass on <laughs> and mm. things that I do want to pass on on my side. And there's things that he does need from me uh, yeah. and there's things that he doesn't need from me. And it's a two-by-two two matrix. Like some things I want to pass on, he doesn't need. <laughs> and some things I don't pass on, he does need. Right? There's this trade-off 
of, uh, you know, like, you know, obviously the things I do pass on that he does need and things that I don't pass on that he doesn't need. But figuring out what those are is not a science. I'm not even sure if it's an art. But maybe that is the art. And in fact, this is the thing that I want for Father's Day, right? This is my Father's Day, right? Is to step back and reflect on these questions, you know, both what you intended and didn't intend and what mm. helped me and didn't help me. Uh, and, and in particular, this is kind of where I come up with Rockefeller is that like, in some ways his father was right. Is that, you know, his father grew up in a very hard scrabble time mm. and he found a way to achieve some measure of happiness and some measure of thriving for his family by embracing mm. the reality he found himself in. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I mean, it is, you know, uh, I mean, it is safe to say that by most measures, Rockefeller was the most successful man of his generation. Right? Yeah. Both in yeah. terms, you know, in terms of, you know, not just in terms of the, the crude economic calculus of market power and finances, but in terms of being a religiously upright man who was incredibly charitable, who was faithful to his wife and all these things, like, for, you know, and how much of that was intentional or accidental and productive or counterproductive on his father's part, we can discuss. But like, if we, what measure of a man is how successful his children are, right? <laughs> and yeah. No, but this, uh, measure, I think his charitable, his charitable side was intentional. Oh, I was talking about how much of that was intentional on his father's part. Oh, father. I don't right, think yeah, so. so. I don't think the father was charitable. No. I, I, Did I, you I find that? Was, I don't know. I, I, I'm just saying in general, like, I don't know. Like, certainly his father seems to have intentionally, um, well, I don't know. I don't actually know what his father's intentions were, to be honest. Right? Because he, he. No, I think uh, no, his father didn't go to church with him. It was all his whole so I mean, I mean in general. Like, like, mm. so, like I said, the, my point was is that Rockefeller was extraordinarily successful. Yeah. And it's fair to say that one of the ways we measure a man is by how his children turn out. Right? But I, and, and it's clear that, that a lot of things that. Bill, that uh, his, I guess Bill Senior, right? Um, Big Bill, uh, Rockefeller's dad. Uh, yeah. No, sorry, his dad is Bill, and he's John. Yeah. Right. The Big Bill. The Big Bill. Uh, he clearly had a very big impact on Rockefeller's life. I don't know how much of any of it was intentional. Like, was he teaching him? Like, was he, like, it, he, it, I mean, he, he would spit a narrative, like, oh, yeah, I'm messing with him financially to teach him to be sharp in his dealing with banks or something like that. Like, was that actually true? Was that actually his intent? Or was he just spitting a story and he secretly just enjoyed torturing his son? Like, I don't know if Big Bill <laughs> even knows the answer to that question. Okay, let me interrupt you there for a second. Sure. I think, you know, most fathers are not like you, Ernie. They don't think about, Okay, what uh, legacy am I going to leave for my son? What lessons am I teaching my son? When uh, we were doing parenting, um, we were just doing things, and most of the time, 
you watched us do things and learned. Some of them, maybe we were told you be careful with your money or um, how to uh, use your time, whatever it is. But most of the time, uh, they were accidental teaching moments rather than intentional teaching moments. You know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. It's another question about the time to ask like, So in terms of, so most of it of what we do, what the old thing is, we don't rise to the occasion. We default to our training, right? In that we just do what we've seen done just sort of by reflex. Like chat yeah. GPT, we just spit out an answer based on the prompt, based on our previous experiences. Yeah. But occasionally, we make choices. Oh, yeah, Right. Yeah. So what, what what do you think are some of the more intentional things that you did as a parent? Well, um, made sure you had opportunities mm. uh, to, uh, to learn, to uh, be involved in things. Uh, mm-hmm. When we were little, we enrolled you in different things, right? Sports and other things. Yeah, Judo, uh, uh, Baptist Church, Awana. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. Awana. Yeah. yeah. And uh, then uh, uh, science camps and, and things like that when you're a little bit older. The opportunities were not there as much as the kids have nowadays. So we exposed you, took you to plays in Chicago, you know, to. Uh, uh, we saw most of them uh, with the headliners in the original. Uh, musicals and stuff. Right. I don't know uh, how much. Yeah, that... yeah, that's an interesting thing. Yeah, I, I haven't thought about that, but but in terms of expensive entertainment, that's mm. actually the only thing I really think about uh, is these, these all these musicals we saw in downtown Chicago, right? Because like traveling was like driving around in the back of a station wagon and visiting relatives. <laughs> like we stayed. We I didn't feel like we did expensive week vacations until like we were in college. <laughs> Probably, but you know, we will go to uh, Oberlin and stuff. But uh, but you know, I but think then we, we drive. Then? We are earning. For example, I don't know whether you remember this. Uncle Willie uh, was in uh, Lexington, Kentucky. When we went there, we, we went and saw the Mammoth Cave and uh, things like that. Yeah, didn't we drive there and sleep at people's houses? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. We don't never stayed in the hotels. Yeah, yeah. Right, that's what I mean by it wasn't really expensive. Like, we did a lot yeah. of vacations, and they were very interesting, yeah. but they were not expensive. Yeah. No. Right? No, no, I mean, <laughs> what I was trying to tell you was, like you said, what were we exposed to? We gave you, I think, a variety of experiences, uh, which, uh, like, you know, we went to amusement parks and stuff like that, and you guys really had a good time, not necessarily doing things, but planning things. When you got there, okay, you guys will say, okay, I'm here, he and I are going to do this. You're going to do this. Things yeah, like that. I know. So, uh, so some kind of organizing thing there. And then uh, you also, uh, well, again, you cannot just say it's all me, right? Because your mother mm-hmm. was involved in a lot more things than I was too. Uh, so her influence was there too. As parents, we exposed you to a lot of things. That's what uh, gave you a wide variety of experiences, not just one particular thing, like just sports. Or you know right uh, right and that was the, so that was a conscious like choice you made in the parenting was to try to really or that something you were consciously aware that you were doing and and yeah. you tried to do more of with exposing us to different experiences yeah yeah like yeah. you know I mean some of it is uh, you guys like uh, 
enrolling into the library when you were three years old, something like that, because you were uh, adept at that and you picked it up and ran with it. And uh, mm -hmm. so things like that. So, but but other things you would have caught mainly uh, by watching uh, how we spent our money or how we invested our money or how we managed our money and things like that. Uh, you know, a little bit I'm trying to do that with uh, Rohan and Anjali with the investment thing. I think yeah. I may have had the same talk with you about water stocks and things like that when you were at one point, when you were still yeah. uh, at home. Uh, mm -hmm. So going back to Rockefeller, where are you now? Is he into oil yet? No, the, the, the last sentence of the chapter is that he makes, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, which is a pretty good profit. Uh, but this is all just dealing with commodities, and he has no idea that there's something happening in Pennsylvania that's going to change his life and change the career. So there's like one sentence about it at the at the end of the chapter that oil is going to happen. So it's the all just about to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the surprise. Oil was in uh, uh, Ohio. <laughs> I didn't know that. So it was so Pennsylvania, actually. Was it was actually really? Pennsylvania okay. was yeah where it was but because he was in Cleveland at the time he was in Cleveland right, right yeah it always surprises me when I discovered that the opening was Pennsylvania because I always associate with Texas but that was much later okay so much, another much thing right though another thing that's shocking about Rockefeller is you hear about him being an oil tycoon and it was it was kind of surprising to realize this was before the automobile so it wasn't petroleum for for automobiles no. it was kerosene they were throwing it away or lighting yeah, they were they didn't know what to do with petroleum, yeah. Yeah, it was a whole different world. And what's interesting is, and, and this is actually probably another fascinating point, is that in any other circumstance with this background, he would have been a very sharp businessman. But because he was a very sharp businessman and he was in the right place at the right time, he made a killing during the, the, the Civil War, rather than getting killed, I suppose. Uh, and yeah. then when oil happens... He has the right combination of, of, and we would disagree about this, I would say um, of strengths and weaknesses that make him the perfect person to create the first multinational corporation. Yeah, see, and, the interesting thing is, it was not in the drilling of oil that he made the money, it's in the refining right. of oil. And it was interesting that he found a guy who first invented yeah. refining. Huh? And he it's associated himself with a refining guy, yeah, he, which was not being done most places. So he was like a pioneer there. Right, so he was in the right place. In some ways, he was the right place at the right time. With the right right but he was in the right place at the right time with the right role and the right relationships. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting... Right attitude. Hmm. Right, attitude, right. Yeah, with the, the right, uh, well, it's an interesting question. I don't know if attitude and role is the same thing. Or aptitude. He certainly had the aptitude, right? Yeah, aptitude. Um, yeah. yeah, he certainly had an aptitude um, for, you know, caring about things. And in particular, interestingly, like every, I have this thesis that everything in life is, is there's a, there's, the most interesting things in life are tensions. And every tension involves a trade-off. Uh, another great yeah. Andy Stanley quote is, where, is, is, is this challenge a tension that needs to be managed versus a problem yeah, to be right. solved? Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. you know, problems can be solved and, and they're done, but tensions just have to be managed. And yeah. you have to make a trade off 
And Rockefeller consistently, even in this chapter, it's like okay, he would rather spend an hour, uh, you know, trying to figure out where the last penny was off in the account. And it made a point. Yeah. He's like, he wasn't greedy. He was just obsessive. And like, if the customer overpaid by a penny, he was determined to make sure they gave that penny back. Right. He right. just wanted, and to me, that speaks to, and I have this, uh, I, I call this the, 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 the digital obsession. Like having, like my job now, I'm actually doing a bunch of coding. Um, oh, okay. And I really, which, you know, uh, and what's funny is that I realized, you know, there's a danger that this is too easy because my real job is actually wrangling human beings to get them to make good decisions to drive the product right. forward. Yeah. And dealing with simple digital abstractions is much less emotional labor. And there's some. It can get very emotional when you're at 11 o'clock at night trying to find a bug. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, it's, it's not nearly the level of complexity as dealing with human beings. And I can't mm. help but wonder, okay, hold on, I need to pause for a second. Hello? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Go sorry. Ahead. My, my phone was, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, just real quick is that, is, that, is that in some ways retreating to digital abstractions like money or software is a mm -hmm. way of avoid, to me at least, uh, it, it can be a way to escape emotional burdens. And so I have to really, I've been thinking about how I need oh, okay. to, yeah. okay. uh, mm -hmm. and I, you know, I wonder, like, it's, 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 it's a good adaptive response, but it's a trade-off. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he was able to make that trade-off and was willing to make that trade-off is clearly one reason he was so successful. He focused on yeah. the money, he focused on the outcome, um, yeah. and that superpower enables him to become what he did. And my yeah. thesis is that that was also it was not just the source of his strength. It was also uh, the source of what his detractors call evil. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Some story. Oh, you need to go? I need to go in like five minutes or at least pause to take care of something, but you can keep going. Okay. Okay. So, no, I'm, I'm, we have somebody coming for dinner, lunch too. Okay. You may not know this uh, aspect of that. Do you still balance your checkbook? No, <laughs> not okay. anymore. All right, I didn't that's what I was going to tell you. Got married. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so um, when I started practice uh, in '74, right, uh, Kirtu and uh, his brother came over to play tennis and be with us here in Rochelle. And he came to the office. I was showing them the office around. I showed him my checkbook, and he said, "He said, Prabhu, do you balance your checkbook?" I said, "I do." Uh, he said, "That's good," because he said. If it is off one penny, that means it's totally off, not just one penny. There's something wrong with the whole thing. He was an accountant, right? He was a CFO of uh, yeah. the whole hotel chain there, including uh, the McCormick uh, Inn. He had three, right. he managed three uh, hotels there. He was a CFO. And that was interesting. So I wrote all my checks. I think you probably know that. 
for my mm-hmm. for my practice, I wrote all the checks. I balanced uh, my uh, checkbook there and at home. Mm-hmm. Okay, which is fine, but for some reason I don't do that now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think frankly, the, 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 I mean, I think what happened for me maybe the culture is different. Uh, well, also over time, as banks got more uh, automated, yeah. Right, the likelihood of finding an error, like it used to be like every month you'd find something wrong, you yeah. know, that wasn't clearing or whatever. And it was also, everything was checked. And so all the paper yeah. and how long it took things to clear was very complicated. Now that it's all credit cards and internet transactions are fully digital, the value you get by spending that time is much lower. <laughs> Probably, but I didn't do it consciously. I was slipped into it unconsciously. Yeah. And I, I just, I mean, I just still check my portfolio stock portfolios, and I picked up, I think I told you last time that I picked up a lot of uh, things from that. So uh, go, going back to uh, then uh, Rockefeller, I think uh, some of it, you know, he, he we, we'll talk about it next week probably because that will be interesting how we dealt with the railroads. And so for this time, so he is just now um, at the age of 18 or 19, he's branching out on his own, starting his own partnership. And right? Well, I mean, he's been he's been working for him, work for other people before this, and yeah, then yeah, he yeah. was no, working, then yeah. he was running his own business. But then he sort of becomes like a magnet in his own right. People talk about him as a rich man at age 21 and call him Mr. Rockefeller. By the end of the this chapter. Oh, already. Yeah, oh, they're the calling him Mr. Rockefeller. Yeah, yeah. But, but he hasn't uh, gotten into oil yet. He hasn't, he hasn't gotten into oil. He's, he's locally rich. He's not nationally rich. But, you know, as a man in the town, he's considered one of the wealthy people. Yeah, and the surprising thing is only 21. Uh, even though yeah. the age is different now than it was then, but and no. obviously he didn't. Did he go to college? No, he just worked. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think he was starting. So I think basically I, apprentice. I think there was actually one of the things up in the previous chapter where he had to leave school to support the family. Right. Yeah, and he worked as a clerk. Right. Mm-hmm. And, like uh, your father. <laughs> but it was like an apprenticeship. Apprenticeship, yeah. and he realized that he fell in love with the numbers, with what he was doing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, if he had been born today, he would have probably fallen in love with software the same way. Yeah, right. Yeah, he may have been a Bill Gates. He may have been a uh, Steve Jobs. Who knows? And one could argue that they are both very much in the mold. We talked about him. He was like found, founding father, right? Yeah. 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 All right, I should yeah. wrap up and take care of stuff at home. But, um, yeah, we can stop at this, this point. But yeah, the, the, the title of the news for this is what I'm going to call it Unconscious Intent. Because that's yeah. the thing that is, uh, I'm wrestling okay. with in terms of, you know, what is it? What is the what is the patrimony that we pass on, and yeah. whether it's intentional or useful. Yeah. And and I think the short answer is like it's it's always useful in some context, um, but not useful in others. And it's a hard thing to shift modes and roles. You know, the mm. patrimony, like you know, having this attitude is a good thing most of the time, and kind of problematic at other times, and um, the, the word that comes up is adaptive versus maladaptive uh, that came up in my the podcast I did with somebody else. It's like certain things like work really well now, 
but then they don't fit when the context changes. And yeah, but I remember, Ernie, remember, yeah, just the last word here uh, from me is, remember we spent a lot of time in the car discussing a lot of topics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, those were intentional times, like, you know, mm. maybe to arrange marriages, maybe uh, from uh, after we came back from the uh, uh, Christian Indian Christian retreat, talking about mm-hmm. faith matters, you know, like uh, mm-hmm. uh, the role of music in church and all those things and what our our um, feelings were, our, our values were uh, against what you guys were, some of them were totally opposed, right? Remember those things? Yeah. 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 Even politics, yeah. Yeah. All right. So, okay, like thank you, you said, Even it. though you said it's unconscious intent, like it's a balance, both of them, yeah, right, so. Okay, we'll continue next okay. week. Okay. All right. Thanks, Dad. Okay, Bye. Uh, love you. Okay. Love you too, Dad. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Mm, bye-bye.